0: Evolution, to come back to my science roots, (laughs) it is what we all do every single day. After I had chronic fatigue and then I recovered, I just thought, I feel like I've been given this second chance at life, and I'm gonna squeeze every drop. My parents, their immigrant parents, when I said I was leaving this incredible, (laughs) secure, well-paid job, they must have had a lot of thoughts. I was so bruised and I was so messed up. This marriage had ended so quickly but COVID seemed to be affecting everyone. It changed the way I reported because I would always be reporting about something happening over there. And this was stuff that was making me lie awake at night. Parents are so worried that their kids are gonna see skin color, but not telling them about race or racism, I don't think solves anything really. We all want the same things. We all want to know truths about ourselves, Mm -hmm. about the world and how we work. And science just does it in a way that I found really fascinating.
1: My guest today is the science journalist Priya Joy. In her 20 plus year career in journalism, Priya has reported on the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the COVID-19 pandemic, and has also reported on malaria, HIV and TB, writing for the World Health Organization, The Lancet and New Scientist. Over the last few years, she has, I'm guessing, been an incredible friend to have on the end of a phone for reassurance when we were all living through the uncertain times of the pandemic, when misinformation was rife and knowing someone who knew the latest science was a balm. Something for which Priya herself wanted guidance was in navigating parenthood when you're a minority. Her new book, Motherland, What I've Learned About Parenthood, Race and Identity, is for anyone trying to navigate the complexities of race and motherhood who has ever felt other, who has struggled to reconcile their past or cultural upbringing with how they raised the next generation. In every episode, I ask my guests to share their life lessons with me via the stories of how they've navigated the tougher stuff. Priya, I am so glad to welcome you onto The Emma Gunn Show.
0: Oh, thank you, Emma. It's really lovely to be here.
1: It's such an interesting uh, position to be in, to be sitting in front of somebody with your knowledge and expertise. And I mentioned in the introduction that I can only imagine that during the pandemic, when there were lots of people out
0: there saying, follow the science, that your phone must have just been ringing off the hook. It really was. I had people sending me DMs on Instagram, people I didn't know and had never met. And that was unusual because although I had a bit of a profile on Twitter, I wasn't used to people directly asking me for advice. And so I had to sort of balance this tightrope with one, with wanting to reassure them and tell them what I knew, what the science was telling us, mm. with also saying I'm not a doctor. So that's a fine line between not dispensing medical advice. Mm-hmm. But in terms of preventing disease, there was so much we knew already: wearing masks and keeping distances, and just not doing anything that you really wanted to do, which was going to be really fun, which was probably also risky. I had to kind of be the mum and go, "No, you can't go to that party, or you can't hang out with ten people, or you know whatever the numbers were at that point." So um, yeah, so I was trying to strike a balance. That must have been the most incredible.
1: Time where life meets work in a sort of, in the most, in the most huge way. For you as a science journalist, was it like, oh, this is really exciting, but then it became terrifying? Like, what was your personal experience of
0: being sort of frontline in terms of frontline on the information? So, Initially, the ex- I mean, I have to say this sounds almost a little bit perverse, but as a science journalist, to have a new disease <laughs> is so unheard of. Normally, you're writing about things that have been known about for decades or centuries. Um, this was new. It was moving fast. We didn't know how it was evolving. People were sequencing the genome. And it was really, it, I mean, yes, it was exciting scientifically from that point of view. However, in parallel, so many people were dying and getting so sick. And this was... Um, we were seeing really healthy people get sick as well. So it made it pretty terrifying because you just never knew if it was going to be you. With other things, you normally know the risk factor, say, with malaria. If you go to a place with lots of mosquitoes mm. or HIV, if you have unprotected sex and you're gay, you might, you know, you might be more likely at higher risk. But COVID seemed to be affecting everyone and there were so many unknowns. And I have a little girl, so we didn't know how it affected children. Um, for a while, we didn't know how it was being spread. I don't know if you remember, there were times when people were washing their vegetables and like, er, like wiping down cereal boxes. <laughs> the postman would turn up and you'd be like, get back. Yeah, exactly. Spray, you couldn't, you didn't want to touch it for hours. Yeah. So there was so many unknowns. So, and, and it just, I was in a 24 hour news cycle, basically. I was writing about it, thinking about it, WhatsApping my editor constantly, 11 at night, midnight. And um, and then I had a kid at home as well. He was, my my um, husband was teaching her whatever he could out on the little terrace so that I could work. Um, so it was a really strange time. Yeah, really strange.
1: I can't even imagine from that perspective. Just new information everywhere,
0: but also this sort of pull from
1: your life of people saying what's really happening because I know what it's like when when a celebrity story breaks my friends yeah. message me saying what's really happening <laughs> so I just think there must be that parallel of when there's a science story or yeah. something like that the same must be happening to you like what's really going on what aren't they telling us
0: I think what it did as a science journalist and I've reported on stories for about 20 years it changed the way I reported because I would always be reporting about something happening over there mm. that might be somewhere in Asia somewhere in Africa and it felt quite impersonal. And this was reporting on stuff that was making me lie awake at night. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a huge amount of empathy because when you're reporting on, let's say, malaria or HIV, it's not a disease. You're reporting on the person and how they're affected in communities. Mm. So I do think it made me and a lot of other writers in the UK and the US suddenly understand what it's like when you're in the crisis and you're not just reporting from afar, from your comfy sofa.
1: That's really interesting. I guess that just changes the framework within which you work moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I always ask my guests as sort of an opener, it's a good get to know you question. So, how would you describe your relationship with taking risks?
0: So, I think I like taking risks within certain parameters. So, I've moved countries a couple of times without tons of deliberation beforehand. I moved from England to France when I was working for the World Health Organization across the border in Geneva. And I remember the conversation I think with my husband was literally while we are in Sainsbury's going, <laughs> I've been offered this job, what do you think? And we talked about it a little bit. And then I think by the time we'd done our supermarket shop, we decided we wanted to move. And then moving to Barcelona, I remember we were sitting next to each other in bed and we knew that Brexit was coming. And so we wanted to live in Europe while we still could. And we talked about Spain and then we talked about tapas. And then (laughs) we sort of just like made these decisions in a way that to me felt almost not uh, frivolous or flippant, but just really rapid. Like Mm. we were like, yes, let's just go for it. But then I did fill in a form for an independent financial advisor, and he said, my financial risk is I'm super risk averse. So it might be that in situations where I feel comfortable, like I know I can just show up in a new place and make friends and get to know the area but I know nothing about stocks and shares. And so I feel terrified. And he said, I've got the risk profile of like someone in their 70s who's scared of losing money. Interesting. (laughs) He said, I'm so surprised that someone in their 40s
1: is so risk averse. Because the way you said that, making a decision to move countries whilst on a supermarket shop in Sainsbury's makes me think that's the risk about listening to your gut. It's black and white. Do, Do we, I feel we should. Yeah. Let's flip a coin kind of decision making, whereas stocks and shares and investment portfolio requires, well, gathering information and then forming a strategy, which is a much longer process, but it's still risky.
0: Yes, true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because I feel I'm quite self-reliant and quite independent and I feel like I can be okay in most situations. Well, most situations are involving being in cities. In the wild, I would be absolutely useless. <laughs> but in cities, I know how to navigate them and I can generally work things out. But yeah, with finances, I think, oh, I have to talk to finance people. and Who wants to do that? <laughs> has
1: your uh, relationship to risk changed, do you think, since being a mum?
0: That's interesting. Um, I think it has. I think now... It's not so much that I wouldn't take risks. I think it's just that those decisions will affect not just me, but a very vocal eight year old <laughs> who says that she doesn't want to move schools and that she really like you know, she expresses um opinions about the type of apartment we live in, for example. And so it's not that i w- we would be completely led by her. where We're the adults and we would make decisions. but, We like to be quite democratic in our household. And so I sort of think, oh, yeah, but if we just suddenly move to Thailand, then we'd be wrenching her away from Mm -hmm. her grandparents and her older brother and sister. And so it just, it's this realization of, oh, I can't just do, I can't just do what I want because I have a kid now. Mm. Yeah. So when I asked you what your biggest risk risk
1: is that you've ever taken, Mm. It was part of it was about this move from Geneva to Barcelona. Yeah. But the thing that really stood out for me is the fact that it was a well-paid job yes. that you left yeah. that was secure. It was a fixed term, yeah. And crucially, and I love this,
0: had a lot of perks yeah. which we can un- yeah. <laughs> I want to know what the perks
1: are for a science journalist.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, so this was the UN, so that meant you had a really chunky pension. It meant that your kids can go to any university in the world and they will, their university fields will be paid for, which for a lot of parents, that would be a massive incentive. Mm -hmm. Um, it would be things like, um, I can't, things like you'd get to the end of a contract and then you get like a random bonus and things like that. So really big financial perks, incredible healthcare. I mean, this is Switzerland after all. So I probably could have had my teeth veneered and my eyes laser. I don't know why I didn't do that while I was there. (laughs) So those sorts of things, which, and I'm not dissing financial security, I think, especially now when we're in this cost Mm. of living crisis, financial security is so important. But I knew that I could move and I hoped we would be able to make enough money to live a decent life. But also I sort of looked more um, holistically at life And thought there are other forms of security and having more time with me, for example, seemed more important. But it was a big risk and we moved just a few months before the pandemic. So that could have gone very badly wrong as well. But we've managed luckily to come through it okay. See, the thing I think for me when you were describing the job that you left,
1: I think that we're of a similar age. And I think we both probably had it drummed into us when we were at school that... This is the thing that you will do. You yeah. will go to university, you'll get a job and you will stay in that job slash career slash company for a really long time. And it was almost like that's the journey. yeah, yeah. And so with the job that you had with its security, with its perks, all of those things, it wasn't just about that. It was that you knew what life was going to look like for the foreseeable future. And that is so tantalizing. yeah, that's that is another layer of security, an intangible one, but one that you can kind of bank on.
0: That's right, exactly. And it was also stepping out of the sort of escalator, as you say, of like, of well, you do this and then you do this and then you hit this sweet spot and then you just stay there till you're retired and your kids are grown up. And I mean, my parents, they're immigrant parents, they're from India, they moved when they were like in their 20s, have worked really hard. And to their credit, when I said I was leaving this incredible, (laughs) secure, well-paid job, They just sort of said, are you sure? And they didn't say, no, you shouldn't. We don't think you should. They just said, are you sure this is what you want? And I said, I absolutely think it's what I want. I want to have more time with my daughter and I want all of these other things. I want to, um, I want to have a life where I'm walking between things and I'm not driving everywhere in this, you know, sitting in traffic. And these are things that are very meaningful to me. Um, and as meaningful as financial security. And they were really supportive. And I think it they must have had a lot of thoughts that they very sweetly just kept in their head and they <laughs> didn't tell me. And they've been super supportive ever since. Was that part
1: of it? Was I'm guessing from the outside, your job looked a certain way to other people. And I guess there's a status thing there of, well, she's doing really well for herself. Was there... How did that factor into your decision making? Do you care much about what other people
0: think? No, I don't actually. And I I don't know why this is. And it's not that I think I'm particularly cool. I really don't think I am. It's that I've always gone for things that I wanted to do and that I've loved doing. So I was really lucky that my first job was at an incredible medical journal, The Lancet. And that happened from an internship where I got on with everyone really well. I think I did pretty well while I was there and I applied for a job and I got it. And so when people know that that was my first job, they're kind of like, oh, the Lancet. And then I went on to New Scientist and then I went on to the World Health Organization. And so it looks like I've had this very well thought out career. But actually, I just thought, what would I really love doing? When I was a New Scientist, I was writing about physics and the environment and I was writing these big stories and it was really interesting. Then at the World Health Organization, I was working on things like Ebola and Really big global far reaching, um, diseases like malaria, for example, and, um, making sure that women and children are prioritized. So there was, it was more from what would I find really interesting? And when I left WHO, it was what would I find really interesting now? And that was, Moving to another place where I could be freelance, I could just write and work for whoever I wanted, including WHO. Mm. I didn't stop working for them, but I just then could explore things. So I could write a book, for example, which wouldn't have happened if I had stayed in my incredibly busy job. So it was I, I was always aware of how my career seemed to other people, but I always knew that that wasn't the motivation. You know, status has never really motivated me.
1: Interesting. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what drew you into your particular line of journalism, mm. because I've talked many times on this podcast. I wanted to work. I wanted to become a beauty editor <laughs> yeah. for because I thought it would make me beautiful, and I knew there'd be some products involved. And I also wanted to interview celebrities because I thought that that would make me cool. <laughs> like <laughs> it was all very superficial. Yeah. Um, so I have to ask,
0: what was it that drew you towards science journalism specifically? So I studied genetics at university because at the time, this was the early 90s, we were just starting to understand how to sequence a genome and find out what it was actually made of. And we were reading the genome of um, human beings, which I found fascinating and really interesting. And for someone who, and I was also interested in stories, I was also always interested in English literature, but this seemed to be a new way of looking at the world and a new way of looking at what it meant to be human. Because we were sort of looking from the inside out, as it were. Mm. So I then studied genetics and I was working in a laboratory doing very badly because I have no skill for laboratory work. I don't have the patience to run tests for hours and hours. And I would be reading Hello Magazine in between, in between, um, in between these experiments. And I remember a supervisor saying to me, why are you here like she just said what what are you doing what are you reading about i don't know the queen of spain when when you you know so that was telling me i this wasn't exactly the right place mm. and then i managed to do um i got onto a masters at imperial which was science communication and suddenly these two things my love of storytelling and science came together and then i i knew i was like i was so happy and i knew that that was it and to me Science and literature tell stories about people. We all want the same things. We all want to know truths about ourselves, Mm -hmm. about the world and how we work. And science just does it in a way that I found really fascinating. What's the most thrilling scoop or story
1: or um, event that you've covered?
0: I think it was probably writing about um, in the HIV world, there was a moment where they found that the treatment for HIV could also be used as a preventive, and now it's called PrEP, mm. um, and that was a few years ago. And I was at this big HIV conference where that was being discussed, and I remember interviewing people about it and writing about it. And it was a good ten years, maybe more now. And that I thought, wow, this is going to be game changing, mm. and it's going to prevent so many illnesses, so many save so many lives, and really revolutionize. Um, Life for the gay community because now they're not living quite in fear as much and their lives aren't dictated by it, and so they can have a bit more of a regular life. Mm. And that I thought was incredible that that a scientist just happened to f- discover that. It is. It has gone from the adverts in the eighties of the two
1: with the tombstone, absolutely, and death sentence yeah. to something that's manageable and yeah. preventable. Yeah, which is just. You gotta love science. It's incredible, I know. You gotta love science. Yeah. I always talk about that on this podcast. Yeah. It's like I, particularly in in as a beauty journalist, like you can sit in a couple of camps, and I definitely sit in the science camp mm-hmm. with the science geeks, <laughs> because I am so I'm reassured by evidence and data. Yes, absolutely. Rather than someone saying, "Oh, this crystal made me feel amazing." <laughs> I'm like, no, show, show me, show me, a bit show me, more evidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, okay, so um, with that risk, the biggest risk that you've ever taken, uh, did you ever feel the move from Geneva to Barcelona? Do you have any doubts along the way? did you ever sit down, look at your husband and think, oh, are we doing the right thing?
0: No, I did, I really <laughs> didn't I would i uh, it's a thing that's reassured me that even when things haven't been always smooth sailing. I mean, you know, we live by the sea. We eat great food and drink great wine and all of that stuff. But there are, um, hiccups with being freelance. You have to chase people for being, you know, to get paid and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. And then, um, during the pandemic, I remember feeling very far away from my family, but then we wouldn't have felt any closer if we had been in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only thing I really miss being there is just the landscape. It's mm-hmm. so breathtakingly beautiful. The mountains and like green meadows and the lake. And I do miss that, but I can always visit. Mm, that is the thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: So what would you, how would you describe your relationship uh, or how you deal with adversity on a scale of one to 10, 10 being I'm excellent at it?
0: Um, I would say maybe a seven, Okay. Yeah. Between a seven and, yeah, I don't know. Let's not over, <laughs> no, let's not overstretch. I was going to really up my number. I'd say a seven. I think I'm very good at crisis management and in the moment I can just get on with things. But I do that in a way that I don't know if it's super healthy by compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. So something terrible could happen and I can just compartmentalize it and then go, okay, I'm going to crack on with my day. I'm going to go pick up my kid and then, you know, march on. And then I sometimes process things a little bit later on. Um But I also, I mean, I'm blessed. I live with two people who are super positive and optimistic. My husband and my daughter are generally people who get up and they're singing and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're really optimistic. So even when I'm feeling a little bit glum or I might have a tendency to just sink into watching Netflix in bed and, you know, they will pull me out and sort of go, oh, come on, we're going for a walk, we're going to get a coffee. And so being surrounded by positivity, I think, is really helpful. Um, yeah. Are you, your very
1: nature then, would you say you are positive, but you have moments of maybe needing that push?
0: Yes. I think overall, when something bad happens, my my response is more positive than negative. Mm-hmm. I'm not a pessimist by nature at all. I like to hope for the best and to to assume things are going to go well because you don't actually know how it's going to turn out. So you mm. may as well just assume it's going to work out fine. Um And I also have like a really good support system. My mom and dad, my sister, friends, all of these people will shore me up. And I think that really helps when you're going through a tough time to have someone to make you laugh. Mm-hmm. Just tell me, my sister will leave me voice notes just telling me the most stupid things that have happened in her day to just make me laugh. And as soon as you laugh, you think, okay, if I can laugh, maybe not about the thing that's just happened, mm-hmm. But then I can work out a way to get through this and make a plan. And I'm a big believer in making a plan Mm. to get through things. I think compartmentalizing
1: actually is quite healthy because if ever... I've definitely been that sort of person who would ruminate. So if something happened, it would then seep into every compartment mm. and I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to enjoy myself or I wouldn't be able to en- enjoy a meal or enjoy a conversation with a friend or enjoy a walk. I would realize I'd been on a walk and had come back and hadn't. Did I even look up? I don't remember right. seeing yeah. the trees or any yeah. people. I've just been. And I actually think saying it, that problem is there and it's going to be there in 45 minutes when you're back from that thing or you've had that conversation can actually be a really good coping mechanism.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it served me really well. (laughs) So are you the person
1: that people lean on in a time of
0: crisis? I like to think so, yes. I have been there for friends when they've been going through really difficult times. Sometimes things that I've been through as well, like divorce, um, and I know it can sometimes help to talk talk to someone who's been through the same thing, even if their feelings and emotions about it are not necessarily Mm -hmm. the same or the circumstances are different. Um, And I do like to listen to people. I'm more of a listener than a talker, I think. So hopefully that means that they, yeah, that they feel like they can talk to me about stuff. So your obstacle, I ask about adversity, because it's Mm. interesting to see how people handle
1: obstacles. And yours is that you became sick in your 20s with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I know that there are probably people listening to this who've experienced similar. It's something that's come up a few times in the Facebook group, actually. And, well, paint a picture for me. How did that
0: manifest for you? So first I caught it, um, I got caught glandular fever, um, also called mono. And that's a very, um, quite a lot of people, I think it's something like 10% of people who get that might then go on to develop some kind of fatigue. In my case, it was chronic fatigue. So that means always being tired, but not being tired in a way that you have a nap and then you feel okay It's a kind of fatigue that sleep or rest doesn't really relieve. So I could have an entire night's sleep and wake up absolutely exhausted. Um, And for some people, that fatigue is purely physiological and it's something that's happening in their body. For other people like me, there's a strong psychological burnout component as well. So I got the virus, um, which is Epstein-Barr virus that causes it. And then because I was also going through burnout at the same time, the burnout sort of like doesn't really let your body recover. And then that's what keeps you in this chronic f- fatigue state. So, you know, it, rather than just kind of clearing the virus and then being better, I was still in so much burnout that I was in this permanent limbo of... Always being tired, feeling unable to walk more than, I think at my worst, I couldn't walk more than about three minutes continuously. And I'd have to stop and have a little sit down and a rest. Um, and so then for me, I mean, there are lots of ways that people recover and some people unfortunately never recover. But for me, traditional doctors, um, I mean, I tried all kinds of things. I went to, um, a GP and, you know, didn't really get anything because people still didn't know enough about the condition. Mm. I then also saw various herbalists and acupuncturists because when you're really sick, I mean, it's easy for healthy people to sort of criticize when people do kind of nutty, you know, uh, things. But um, yeah, it was quite desperate. Like in the end, I saw a therapist And she helped me figure out these symptoms of what were actually burnout. And when I figured those out and worked through those, the fatigue actually started to lift because for me, it happened to be a mostly psychological thing. And, you know, some people sort of describe it very um, dismissively as being all in the mind. I mean, lots of things that happen are in our mind. Our entire consciousness (laughs) is in our mind. So (laughs) I think, you know, it being in the mind isn't, isn't, doesn't mean it's um, trivial. Yeah, so that was nearly two years from start to finish of working through that. It sounds like you were living in Cottonwall. Like Absolutely, th- yeah. I remember um, very clearly the bedroom that I was lying in at the time. We were living in Chalk Farm. Um, this was Mike's husband. And I remember just constantly just looking at those four walls and a couple of paintings and the dresser and thinking, is this just going to be my world? This and the living room um for the rest of my life because I, I went for a little while on forums which I then quickly got off of because for me it wasn't helpful and there were people on there who'd been sick for like 20 years and I just thought oh maybe what you know when I was in my 20s my life mm. was just kind of starting so I'm really really thankful and grateful that I was able to come out of that and just live life normally. You
1: described it as it was almost like that was a moment where there was your life before chronic fatigue syndrome and then your life afterwards. How did it affect your perspective on life?
0: I think I'd always been um, a little bit nervous of trying new things beforehand. I mean, I hadn't yet learned how to drive. I'd tried having a few driving lessons. I hated it. And then I just thought, no, this is not for me. I just decided people are going to have to drive me around. (laughs) And I didn't try... Um, very, like water sports that I wanted to try or go parasailing or skydiving because I just always thought, well, oh, that's for other people. That's not for me. Or things that were, um, like fitness related, like CrossFit, for example, or those sorts of things, boxing. I just thought, well, I'm not very sporty. And then after I had chronic fatigue and then I recovered. I just thought, I feel like I've been given this second chance at life mm. and I'm gonna squeeze every drop of life from it. So I started, I learned how to skate. I learned how to drive. I went skydiving. I told my mom afterwards because <laughs> I knew she was gonna freak out. Um, I went snorkeling. I started swimming in the deep ocean, which I was always very afraid of. Just never, I could never swim in open water really, mm. even though I'm a good swimmer. And so the first few times there was a lot of gulping of water, but then I got over it. I've now scuba dived and I just go for it. And every time I think, can I do this or should I do this? Or maybe, oh, maybe I'll just lie on the sofa instead. I remember when my life was lying on the sofa and just being unable to move or do anything. And I also had extreme brain fog. it's very long covid symptoms, actually. Extreme brain fog. So I couldn't concentrate on things. I couldn't really work because... As you know, as a journalist, you have to. Your brain has to be kicking um, co- Yeah, <laughs> cooperating for you, for you to be able to work and write. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. It just it it, it it. I really embraced absolutely everything, and I think that's also why I decided to move countries at the drop of a hat because I just thought nothing is worse than being bedridden. Absolutely nothing.
1: I was going to say to you, maybe this should have been the first question, because how did this feed into your relationship with risk?
0: Yes, it transformed it, I think. Because risk is, I mean, so in science, doctors are always trying to get people to understand risk. It's such an abstract, complex thing. And it's so, um, it's so relative. It really depends on your background and your upbringing, how you live, where you live, how much money you have. And so it's such a relative thing that it's actually very hard to communicate risk to the whole population, for example. Mm. But it transformed it because I thought I would always now think, what's the worst that could happen? I go scuba diving and I don't enjoy it. It's very unlikely that anything bad is going to happen to me going 12 feet. The first dive is always about 12 meters, I think it is. Um, or, you know, I try and, um, go to a dance class and I look stupid. Well, okay. I mean, it's not the worst thing. And, and it, I do have to still kind of coach myself internally and remind myself of that time. And the further away I get from those late 20s, the more I have to actually remind myself and put myself back in there for a mm-hmm. little moment and go, remember how crap this was and how horrible it felt and how scared you were and remember how lucky you are now to be alive and have a kid and a husband and friends you love and your family's still alive mostly you know so yeah i'm interested you said that doctors are trying to figure out what risk is does that mean they're trying to define it or well it's it's for example it's um say with covid when covid happened When you are trying to, so with lots of diseases, there's a certain, there's um what's called the R number of how many people they will infect. Measles can infect you. One person can infect 18 people. COVID was much lower, but still pretty high. So it's about how you communicate, how many, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like someone might think, oh, if I infect three people, but if I'm in a group of hundred, maybe that doesn't matter. Someone else would come, oh my God, I can't, you know, so it's, It's how, it's how you perceive broadly what is a bad thing or what your own personal, um, ethics are about, about things like that. So that's why to, to communicate to people, you need to wear a mask because even if you don't get it, you have, you might spread it to someone else. There's a high risk you'll do that. Most people will go, well, I'll just, yeah, but there's a risk that I won't or Mm -hmm. there's a chance I won't. And um, yeah, I mean, it probably taps into whether you like gambling or not, you know, it's it's a fa- fascinating sort of psychological aspect to risk.
1: This is quite uh, putting you on the spot a little bit. But if mm. you had to define it, if you when you read that questionnaire and you're like, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Yeah. What what
0: does risk mean to you? I think it means that there's a high likelihood things will turn out badly or things will turn out in a way you don't want them to. So for example, with my biggest risk of moving to Barcelona, I think it could have turned out that because my husband and I were both freelance, maybe because the freelance market had been changing a bit It might have meant that actually we were just sort of scraping by financially. So the life we wanted of being able to travel around Spain and, you know, kind of like take Fridays off or whatever, maybe that wouldn't happen. Now, I'm aware that in the grand scheme of things, (laughs) that's not the worst of all possible outcomes. But I think it's that when something happens, that is negative, that there's a high chance that that would happen. So if you were really sick and you go into a tiny lift and you're coughing everywhere... That's quite risky, mm. because then you're the likelihood is someone will get sick or they'll pass it on to someone else mm. it's
1: it's interesting, isn't it because it's like okay, if you've got a goal, you've got mm. something that you want to get towards, you have to it's that strategy, isn't it, of what's going to happen to me along the way, and yeah. if you want to become a heavyweight boxer a world champion heavyweight boxer, yeah. you're, you're going to assume that somewhere along that journey, you're going to get knocked off,
0: knocked off your feet. Absolutely. <laughs> and I do think it's true that without risk, there is no reward. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche sort of saying, but I think it's true that if you don't gamble something, if you're not willing to sort of put a few chips into the game, there's no way you win then. You're just going to stay mm-hmm. in the same spot, in the same place, doing the same thing. And if that's what life is for you and you're really happy, well, then I think it's great. But I, I think human beings are wired to get these, get rewards, to get these little bursts of dopamine that we like, to, to progress, to advance in whatever way, you know, is meaningful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does mean risking either looking foolish skating, I can't stop <laughs> still, I don't know how to break, um, or it might mean something bigger like mm-hmm. moving country and then actually being a little bit lonely for a little bit and taking the risk of loneliness mm. because you know that three years down the line we now have an amazing circle of friends. But in the beginning it was a tiny bit mm. lonely.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. I think also when I when I thought about formulating this particular questionnaire and getting to know my guests, I thought it also really speaks to someone's relationship or how they feel about when they make a mistake. Are they hard on themselves? How do they think, well, this is part of the journey? So sometimes when you do take, make a big change, like moving, it's really normal sometimes when you're going through those teething problems or there's a bit of friction when you land, you think, oh, I made a mistake. Where do yeah. you sit on that? What's your, do you have an immediate kind of response to, oh, we might have made a mistake here?
0: I I try and refuse to let that thinking enter my head only because I think it can be, it can really seep into your bones mm-hmm. if you start to think you've made a mistake, um, unless there's actual evidence for it. So let's say we moved as freelancers, neither of us are earning a dime. Uh, We're really lonely. Our kid hates it there. So then the evidence stacks up and you think, okay, maybe or maybe we've made a mistake or maybe we need to change how we're doing things. But if things just feel uncomfortable, you know, those moments in life where it's uncomfortable, but, you know, the likelihood is it's going to get better. I literally will just look in the mirror and go, it's going to be fine. It's going to get better. Don't Mm -hmm. worry. And just charge on because it is just changing your mood a little bit, changing your perspective a little bit, to then go, okay, what can I do? If I am feeling really lonely, what do we do? Do we go and do like a, a meetup thing, one of those meetup groups, or do I join a new class? Or sort of like problem solving from that kind that point of view. This leads really neatly into my
1: next question that I want to uh unpick with you, which is about one's feelings about regrets. Mm. And um you 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 talk about your biggest regret and it was again it was interesting when you were talking about making a mistake there because you've taken so much learning from yours I'll let you explain it in a minute so you didn't see it as a mistake you kind of go oh, I understand why I did that and I've learned from it yeah and I've moved on yeah. <laughs> and it's a very smooth calm process yeah. but um you put it under regret so explain what it is because it's about after your divorce and moving to Mumbai
0: that's right. What did I say? <laughs> regret, I
1: completely um, living I. with somebody oh, yes. and this, basically it was this yes.
0: being with somebody because stability yes. was the thing that you yeah. were craving, but perhaps yes, not that I version remember. of it. I, I had two things I was going to write there. So this was, <laughs> so yes, I got divorced. I had been with my ex-husband for about a decade. I didn't see it coming really. Oh. So I then, soon after that, I moved, I think I moved back to London maybe three days after we separated because he wasn't interested in having any counselling or anything. It was just a very final, we're done. Um, oh, so that tough. was brutal. It really was brutal. And then I moved back to London. I lived in the apartment that we had owned before we moved to New York. This It, it was in New York that we broke up. Um, and then I was living in this apartment that I'd owned with my soon-to-be ex-husband it felt pretty horrible being there, as you can imagine. There was all this sort of like, I mean, I'm not a really energy hippie woo-woo person, but there really was some very dismal energy <laughs> in that apartment. Um, And I just didn't want to be in London. And everyone I met, um, met up with friends and so on, were really sad for me. And I understand that. But what it meant is that I couldn't have a conversation with people without having to relive everything. And I think anyone who's been through some any kind of crisis or grief will know this feeling of you sometimes just, sometimes you do want to talk about it, sometimes you just don't. Mm. Um, And so I thought the best place to go would be India because I had cousins there, I had some friends there. And I went to Mumbai and I happened to meet someone um, and I lived with him for a bit. And it was, I think, now in retrospect, I see that I just needed a bit of, I just needed to feel like my life hadn't been blown apart when it had, but I was sort of trying to recreate something with someone that I really shouldn't have because he wasn't the right person. Um, And now when I look back on it and now I have a kid and um, I, my, you know, my time is a lot more constrained in terms of where I can go and for how long I leave her for a week and that's possible every now and then, but even then Um, It's tough. So I sort of think, why didn't I just like take off and go to Thailand? Because I had been thinking about doing that and go and work as a journalist there. Or why didn't I just go traveling around the world? But I think that's a really easy thing to look back on and go, why didn't I make Mm. those decisions? But at the time, I was so bruised and I was so messed up because this relationship and this marriage had ended so quickly. I just don't think I was in the kind of headspace to go traveling solo, and I know that actually, although this person that I lived with didn't end up being anyone that I stayed with or stayed even stayed in touch with, that sort of gave me a safe space, more or less, to kind of figure out what I wanted to do, to sort of heal, to go and meet lots of fun people in India and go to parties and stay up till five in the morning and do all of those things. And I came back to England a couple of times, but I also traveled within India, so I discovered Parts of this country that is also home to me that I had never really been to. I went to Jaipur, went to the literary festival there. I went to Delhi. I went to Kerala and I did a three day kayaking tour. It was just me and the guide. And I can tell you that three days of kayaking makes your arms feel like they want to drop off. (laughs) But it was that. So I sort of had, I think what I did was I allowed myself these moments of exploration but within this very sort of safe bubble. Mm. And so now I just try and have compassion for that me 11 years ago. And I think, well, that's what she needed. And sometimes what you need isn't what you you might think is the best thing to do 10 years later, but then you're not you 10 years later, you're you then. And you just kind of have to accept that you did what you think was the right thing. Mm. So, yeah. If you, I know we can't,
1: Really, explore fantasies, but mm. I think it I feel like this is one that's worth just exploring, yeah, if you could arm yourself with anything knowing what you know now mm. and the experiences that you've had since and the years that you have since, if you could go back and tell yourself anything on the day that you found out, yeah, this marriage isn't just in trouble, it's done, yeah, and from the sounds of it, you didn't really have a say in it,
0: no, I didn't what would you?
1: Uh, arm yourself with to make that less painful? Is there anything you can say or do?
0: Yes, I think there is. I think I wouldn't have lived in the places I've lived in. I've lived in France, I've lived in Spain, I've lived in India, and I wouldn't have lived in those places had my marriage not ended. I think I would have stayed in that marriage. Possibly it would have ended eventually, I know, Um, but maybe we would have stayed together for a few years longer and then and that was around that time was a point that I was really starting to want children and my ex-husband really didn't. So had we stayed together for another three years, it might have meant that, well, it probably would have meant that I wouldn't have met my husband I'm with now and I wouldn't have had my kid because each child is a product of that particular uh, moment in time. Mm. And so to I wish I could have gone back to, if I could go back in time and tell myself anything, I would say, It gets so much better. It gets so much better. And although I didn't quite see the end of the marriage coming, I do, I'm a prolific diary keeper and I do have diaries from that time that I haven't, I couldn't look at for years. I couldn't read through them. But now when I have gone back to them, I could see that in the months and even actually a couple of years leading up to it, I wasn't very happy. But I think I just kind of, Pushed it under the carpet and just mm. thought, well, we'll just work it out or I'm sure it will get better. And, and now when I can see that actually I was living kind of a half life with someone who didn't really want to be with me and I wasn't super happy. Now I live in Barcelona, I have a kid and I'm really happy. And I think it was for the best, mm. even though it doesn't feel like it at the time, but to know it will get so much better beyond your wildest dreams. I think, yeah. If I could go back and tell me 11 years ago and just whisper that into her (laughs) ear, she probably wouldn't believe me. But yeah, it's true. Um, I have to ask, you said that there
1: were two, you were decided between two regrets. Yeah. Will you share the other one?
0: Yes. The other one is um, when we moved to France and I started, I'd been with my daughter at home for about a year and I went back to work, but I went back to work in a very full on way, early mornings, late nights Five days a week, sometimes working at the weekend. And so there were about three of her first three or four years of her life where I wasn't around a lot. And I now feel deep longing when I look at those photos mm-hmm. of her as a little kid that I just wasn't there as much as I wanted to be. And I know that I have a lot of time with her now and I have had since she was five. Um, but it, yeah. It, it is that regret of that moment where I just thought, I wish, I really wish. But then I also don't know what I would have done. I mean, that's the thing about regret is sometimes it can be, I wish I'd never made that decision. Mm. Sometimes the regret is tinged with knowing, well, but what, but what could I have done differently? Mm. I took that job because it meant great security for us. So but yeah but but then sometimes regret is not actually very logical or rational it can be deeply emotional yeah something you just feel in your molecules and you think i wish that could have been different yeah
1: and i think you have to be kind to yourself and think i was operating with what i knew at the time yeah and yeah. or but i think where it gets frustrating is where you think i knew deep down yes i knew yeah. deep down that i shouldn't have done that yeah. but i still did yeah
0: but you only know what you know yes that's true That's true. I'm not, we don't know what we're going to know in a decade's time, hopefully, a lot more.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's all about experience, isn't it? And it's all about, um, it can be so easy to look back on your past self and be quite hard and chastise your younger self for not having done things. But of course, you would do things differently. You've lived 15 more years, had many more experiences. So she was doing just fine. Yeah. Thanks. With (laughs) the information that she had. Yeah. Um, What would you say? Are you somebody who's quite good at being able to see and admit when they are wrong?
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't know. um, I'd say 50-50. Okay. When when I'm wrong in a spectacular way, (laughs) where it's very hard (laughs) to hide behind a cushion, um, I then do own up to it. But I sometimes think, I I definitely know that there are moments where I've been wrong and I try and do some sort of spin doctor stuff in my own head <laughs> of convincing myself, well, no, actually, this is why you did it. But, you know, whether what the motivations for doing something, if you're wrong, you're wrong. Mm. Um, I try to get better about it now. As I get older, truth and honesty are so, I mean, they've always been important to me, but now it's even more important, I think. And so I do try and admit it. It's not an easy thing to do, though, is it? It really isn't.
1: I'm the same as you for a long time I thought being wrong was a massive weakness yeah. so I wouldn't admit it even yeah. in the face of yeah. all of the evidence <laughs> yeah. in, at work in relationships yeah. it's like oh you did that and it was wrong it's like, ah. and I would I'd be that awful person who would fish for excuses of the right. reason why I behaved that way yeah and actually it wasn't my fault and actually
0: I think it's a really freeing thing yeah um to be able to own up to it I think so and actually I think the more confident you are The more you're able to say, oh, yeah, I was wrong. Mm. But when you're younger and insecure, Mm. you're right that admitting that you've done something wrong is like sort of like this big black mark against you. And if you're already feeling a bit unsure of yourself, it's very hard to sort of swallow that failure or that error. Mm. But when you're older and you're more confident, you know who you are, I think you can say, yes, I was wrong. It doesn't it doesn't reflect in any bigger way on you as a person, which is harder to see when you're younger, I think. Totally. And I think as well, when
1: you're younger, you've got the remnants of the memories of being at school. I don't know what school was like for you, oh but if you did yeah. something wrong, you've got you got these things called stripes. Yes. And then if you got a certain amount, then yeah. you got detention. Yeah. So there were repercussions to be admitting that you were wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, I think, yeah. <laughs> you could get caught, yeah. but then you'd often be asked, did you do that? And you'd yeah. have to... So. I think as you get older, the yeah. repercussions aren't the same. And maybe that changes one's relationship with wrongdoing, maybe.
0: I think so, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. We do start, ch- we do train children very early that being wrong is bad, um, even though it's so human. Like, what human being doesn't do something wrong or doesn't get something wrong? Mm. But our whole education system is built around. You have to get things right and then you're chastised yeah. and somehow that punishment. I mean, it's so medieval. You know, we're punished and then we're, we're expected that the punishment is somehow going to make you get things right. And I think that sort of like, yeah, those, those knockbacks are kind of forever live on. Mm. And even when you're like in your inner job in an office and you're an actual adult and you're thinking, <laughs> Oh no, I'm going to get detention because I like fluffed a press release or something. Yeah. I
1: loved the the time that you've told me about, uh, about when you were wrong because I asked you about a specific time. And I yeah. really liked this because I thought there were quite a lot of layers to it. But would you describe for listeners um, the situation when you had to go,
0: oh, actually, you know what? Yeah, I was wrong there. Yeah, yeah, this was a um, book. It's one of those, so my husband had a book, the Alan Carr's How to Stop Smoking book. And he happened to have a book, I don't know why, that was like a graphic novel version of it um he's a graphic designer so maybe that appeals to him more and he had this kind of just lying around and its the title of it w- is very clearly visible my daughter picked it up and because of the graphic novel style she started reading it and i immediately freaked out because i just thought i didn't want her to um associate i just didn't want her thinking about smoking or cuz we have a lot less Um it's less visible now in society. It's less glamorized than it was when we were growing Mm. up. But I just didn't want her to be reading about addiction, which is what ultimately smoking is. And so and how to, you know, get out of it and how to to, and I just thought is not appropriate. But as she read it, she started to then list reasons why you shouldn't smoke because of what it does to your lungs and then you get addicted and then you just keep smoking and makes your skin really horrible and all of these things and other people smoke, you know, inhale your smoke. And actually she learned so much from that that I realized shielding her from what I thought was actually something quite grubby and just I didn't want her to, um, I didn't want her, I didn't want it to be in her brain. Was, I would have been robbing of her, robbing her of a really big educational moment. And, um, and, and that I think applies to so many other things that we may not want to talk to kids about because of our own emotional baggage. And that could be racism or it could be sexism. Um, but those are things that kids do need to know and how much they need to know is appropriate to their age. But these are things that we talk to our kids, you know, about climate change. Because it feels like this big environmental thing. But actually, when you think about it, the earth burning into a crisp is really terrifying. But we don't mind talking to children about that or about conservation and, you know, stuff like that. But somehow things that are more societal, that affect human beings or what people do to other people, I guess. Mm. These are things that we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about alcohol to, um especially to very young kids, but I really don't drink very much anymore. And I have talked to my daughter about why, Um, because she said, because it at that time that you fell over and clonked your head on the bathroom sink, which she witnessed. Was it? Which was, <laughs> yeah, which was really horrible. And I had started to not be able to process alcohol very well. And so I just thought, okay, this is not a good look. So she understands that that's why I don't really drink anymore. And yeah, hopefully it's a good, these are good things that are filtering into her brain.
1: It's to come back to the exposure therapy of that book. I think mm. it's really interesting with alcohol and women in their 40s because I'm absolutely the same. And if you said to me what was one of your regrets, yeah. I would say that I was such a heavy drinker in my 20s and 30s because right. it was a cultural thing at right. work. Yeah. It was very much go to the pub on a Friday and then on the Monday hear the story about who was blackout drunk. Yes. And when yeah. I think about it, I think what, was what it a heavy? waste. Yeah. I mean like Maybe once or twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was not it was just kind of like yeah. the whole point was oh, the party starts when you are drunk. Yeah, yeah. And I, I look back on that and I think, ugh. but yes, like yeah. exactly like you, I in my mid 40s have I'm just unable to process alcohol in the same mm, way. Mm. And the risk is not worth the reward. No, that buzz. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really isn't. And it life feels more. I know that we hopefully have many, many more years to go, but life does feel more finite, I think, Mm. once you turn 40. And you can kind of see to these next big milestones. And I think, okay... Well, these are my really juicy good years still. I don't want to waste it just being hung over, lying on the sofa, like having a bacon sandwich. I mean, I could be like, no like, problem with having the bacon sandwich, but I'd rather do that after like a nice walk or something.
1: Yeah, I so. think you just, yeah, you do think a bit more. It's like when you're a kid, you think nothing of lying in. Mm. But now, I don't know about you, but mornings oh, are the best part of the absolutely. day. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so much better when you've not been drinking the night before. It's it's interesting how your perspective changed. But getting back to the yeah. book, just yes. because I thought the exposure therapy was really interesting. And I wondered if seeing the impact of something that actually could be seen as quite shocking, quite scary. Did mm. that fundamentally, did that have repercussions and ripple effects in the way that you parent as a whole or just in that isolated incident, do you think?
0: No, I think it does. I think it has changed um, how I parent because I've, I've started, I always did try and talk to my daughter about difficult things, but I guess I didn't talk to her about difficult things that maybe made me feel really uncomfortable. Um, and I learned recently, for example, that Catalonia, which is a state that Barcelona is in where I live, um, they had a roaring slave trade, back in the day and I had no idea so it was when Britain apparently I think started to sort of see the error of its ways or was forced to change and then um, yeah Catalonia took over and I had no idea and I was really shocked and so I was talking to my daughter about it because this is a place that she lives in and it is important to know the history that isn't it wasn't always great Mm. you know um she then moved on very quickly to <laughs> skipping around and counting how many candies she'd been given at a birthday party that day. But I do hope that these, yeah, that, that to give her a really well rounded view of the world and everything that's in it, good and bad, is important.
1: It seems like she's a really, uh, she's a real teacher because mm-hmm. it was a moment with her in a supermarket that fundamentally was the seed that, of the book of yes. Motherland.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was when she was about 4 and she said that she wished her skin color wasn't brown, that it was peach, which is how she described white skin, mm. because she wanted to wear this braid that Elsa from Frozen wears and Elsa's blonde. Um and that was a moment where I thought I had assumed that because I'm brown skinned and her dad is and her brother and sister are that she would see herself in that context and see that it was okay. But actually, there's so little representation um, in the media and in films that, you know, and I what I what didn't occur to me is that kids don't often look at their parents and go, I want to be just like that. They look at pop stars and they look at, you know, Disney princesses, and mm-hmm. that's where they look to um for their role models. And when you never see anyone with brown or black skin. Mm inevitably you do think, oh, okay, well, maybe I would rather be white instead.
1: Yes. And that must be a very difficult conversation to try and broach with a four-year-old because does she put the hair down? Does she get the hair anyway? Yeah. What are the ramifications of both those decisions?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I did buy buy (laughs) the plait for her because she was very little. But then... And then I started to think and spoke to my husband about this and spoke with friends and my sister about, okay, so this is happening and it it's not going to be solved by one conversation in the supermarket, although I did try and address it in that moment. But I knew it was going to have to be, well, she's exposed to all of these images That are all little white kids, often blonde. Mm. Um, I need to show her other stuff as well and be more proactive about doing this and slowly, slowly change how she views things. Because the thing is you can never, you can never convince someone of something, no matter how old or, or Mm. young by just telling them you have to show them and you have to change how they feel. And so, yeah, so I started to then bring in dolls that had different skin tones and show her films and cartoons of kids from different parts of the world. And it did feel a little bit forced in the beginning. Mm. Um, but I do think it worked. I do think it slowly seeped in. And eventually she started to see, because parents are so worried that their kids are going to see skin colour, so they don't want to talk to them about race. Mm. Kids see skin colour from really early on. I think there's evidence that babies can distinguish Brown skin from white skin, so kids see it they don't see it as a problem usually until someone tells them otherwise, mm. um, but not telling them about race or racism i don't think solves anything really mm. it's interesting
1: i'm mixed race, and I have really in the last few years I've thought, was I ever really aware of being not white mm. and i don't and i I honestly genuinely in a way can't answer that. I do remember distinctly coming back from playgroup one day and there being an item on the news and it was a white couple with their kids and they were talking about how terrible it was that mixed race people were having children. And there was a part I think right. I must have been 4 at the time. Right. And so that was mainstream news that would have been on yeah. like the local um Channel 3 news or whatever and I remember sort of going in and saying something to my mum and something obviously Planted, But mm-hmm. I didn't, I obviously couldn't articulate what I'd really heard and what it meant. I just sort of like, and I can't remember what my mum said to me. So there were little things like that. Yeah. But I wonder how my childhood would have been different had I been exposed to other things. And so I guess it is about making sure that you are showing the spectrum of people, not yeah. just one thing. Because if if the result of that is that somebody feels less than, Mm -hmm. othered, or that they're not good enough. And that's all been subliminally subliminally installed.
0: That's really, that can be dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is that kids absorb so much. They are in, when they're, especially when they're really little, they are in constant receive mode. Mm. And that could be Oh, I, you know, dogs seem to run after cats. It could be very Mm. mundane things like that. But it will also be, oh, that person with darker skin was treated not very politely by this person. And they won't know why. And as Mm. you say, when you're watching that, that news item, you probably couldn't even articulate even to yourself or even know why that maybe made you feel a little bit weird. Mm. But it obviously rang some alarm bell in your head. And so kids do pick up on all of this stuff. They just don't have the framework to understand it. And I think then what what our job as grown-ups, not just parents, but friends and people around kids as well, mm. is to sort of give them that framework and context of understanding how much diversity there is, not just in race, but also in sexuality and um, in how people live their lives, understanding that diversity is really important and, and it doesn't, you know, it, it shouldn't, it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter what you look like or where you're from or who you, how you identify you you have the right to do whatever you want. And those messages I think are so important before kids even really understand why mm. they need to have it drummed into them, I think. This is the perfect note upon which to end because
1: we're moving into what makes you hopeful and I love, Mm. this is perhaps one of my favourite responses to this question because you said the fact that human beings are ultimately squishy balls of love.
0: (laughs) I think we are. I I think this is one of the really great things about getting older is that you start to understand, you can start to see when, I mean, yes, maybe some people are just wired in a particularly psychopathic way but I think that most people are behaving the way that they do because of some trauma that happened to them or is happening to them. And so many people have different motivations for why they, why they isolate or why they behave badly to other people. And it's not to excuse those behaviors. It's just to understand that actually the only solution to it is love and connection. And we want that more than anything else. I think, you know, we are creatures of connection and um, connectivity and when we don't have that we then it it just doesn't serve us very well and I do think we all want the best and I don't know maybe I'm super optimistic here but I, I feel very hopeful for our species even though the world as it seems now as it is now doesn't necessarily inspire huge confidence but I think we can change, and I think change is happening in some parts of society.
1: I agree with you, and I think we've we're at the point where if you see bad behaviour, it's like you you almost correct it. You sort of you you point it out, and then you maybe might humiliate someone as a yeah. result. That seems to be a big thing. Yeah, but I think you're right. I, I was in a coffee shop the other day, and somebody was really kicking off, and the person in the queue behind said seems like you're having a really rough day. Let me get this for you. And it was incredible how the air in the room just went from really fractious, really kind of like, oh, is this going to kick off? What's the manager going to do? People were stopping like, (laughs) and then it just completely neutralized it. In a way, I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like, oh yeah, thank you. There was still a little bit of something, but it yeah. really, really changed. It was a, it was a significant key change yes. in the tone yeah. of what was going on in the room, which was interesting.
0: I think you're right. We're very. There is such a pervasive air of cancel culture where you say something ro- that's perceived to be wrong, or you say something that isn't great, or you do something that maybe you know that you haven't been caught in your best moment. And then you're kind of cancelled, whatever that means, really. But, but it then, it then doesn't allow for growth. It then doesn't allow for connection because cancelling is basically isolation. Mm. It's basically saying, okay, well, we don't want anything to do with you. You have no possibility to evolve. You cannot change. And we all change. I mean, as we were talking about earlier on, you know, 10 years ago, We were all very different people. Mm. In 10 years' time, we will be different. If you don't allow for connection and evolution, then nothing really gets better. And it's just not a great way to live. I mean, evolution, to come back to my science (laughs) roots, it is very natural. It's what we all do every single day. Mm. So, yeah. I love doing this podcast because I get to see the world through
1: eyes that, through my guest's eyes, and I just, have loved seeing the world through yours, Priya. Thank you oh, so thank much. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This is really lovely.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one.